Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Calloway. I serve as the student and education pastor here at Unity. In today's episode, our senior pastor, Heath Bauer, clearly communicates the context of what God's Word says concerning gender and homosexuality. This is part one of a two-part series. Stay with us to the end to find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. we enter into just a state of worship of you. Lord, we know that as God, you are great. You have been our dwelling place for all generations. Father, we are grass that that rises up and we're cut down. Father, who are we to cry out against a, a mighty, a holy, and a creator God? Who are we to have an opinion against what your word says? Father, reveal to us the nature of who we are, that we are a sinful people, a weak people, a people with a very temporary lifespan. But God, you're eternal, and as such, we submit ourselves to you. And I pray that in our worship of singing, that our worship of the word, that you would find joy in what we do. We invite you today, Father, to speak these words to our heart as we sing, to take the word of your truth of the Bible, to drive it deeply into our hearts. God, may it break our hearts in ways that we disagree with you. May you bring us to a place of confession and agreement with what your word, that what you say, Father, is true. As your word says, the lot divides the mighty, that when your lot is cast, it ends all arguments. Lord, at this point, I pray that you just help us to submit to what your word says, to honor you so as to believe it, to obey it, and to follow it. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, at this point, we're going to go ahead and approach the Lord in by reading the Word of God and to study what the Word of God says. This is a difficult message that we're going to be preaching. As you can tell, this is a departure from what we're supposed to be preaching this morning. We're supposed to be preaching the third message on a new year and just talking about how we adapt and deal with the changes that life brings to us. And I completely finished that message, had the PowerPoint ready to go, submitted it to Theron, and God laid something else on my heart. A call has gone out to all conservative pastors and preachers to one another to respond to landmark legislation, which has just this last week gone into full effect and full force. You may or may not have read about the legislation that our neighbors to the north in Canada have just passed, a legislation, a bill called C-4, appropriately named for an explosive piece of legislation, which has passed through the House of Commons with unanimous vote and applause. That particular piece of legislation says, and I quote from it, it forbids any practice, treatment, or service designed to change or repress a person's sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. After two failed attempts, it finally passed with thunderous applause. Canada is not alone in this. They joined 12 other nations in forbidding the free expression of Christians 
to share with them what God's Word says about gender identity and homosexuality. You can no longer legally counsel an individual in Canada using the Word of God and sharing what God says is true about your gender. Friends, it's only a matter of time before that comes here. And before that day comes, we're going to take the opportunity to freely preach the Word of God so as to equip and prepare each one of us to have a reasoned biblical conversation and more importantly, a worldview about what God says about gender and homosexuality. I'm going to give a brief disclaimer here this morning. We're going to be having a frank, though not graphic, discussion on homosexuality. If you're a parent with young children with impressionable ears, I encourage you to thoughtfully consider whether or not you wish for your child to hear a frank, though not graphic, description and discussion of homosexuality from God's Word. We also want to be sensitive that homosexuality affects nearly all of us here. Most every one of us, we have either a family member or a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, somebody that we know who is struggling with gender identity, who may be in a transgender lifestyle, who may be practicing homosexuality. We want to acknowledge and be sensitive to the fact that many of us are dealing with this. This message will not be Westboro Baptist style. We're not looking to be offensive. We're not looking to be incendiary. We're not looking to be demeaning. We're certainly not going to preach a message of hate. This is not a message of hate, but this will be a message of truth. And often in today's culture, those two things are misconstrued, that someone who teaches truth, therefore, must hate that which they disagree with. Instead, I want this message to be in the spirit of Ephesians 4.15, that we want to speak the truth, but in love. And I pray that you understand that we love you. We love those of you uh, who have family members who are struggling with this. We love you. If you're listening to this message today, you're struggling with homosexuality. You're, you're in a transgender lifestyle. We do not hate you. We do not even dislike you. We love you as Jesus loves each one of us. When my youngest daughter, Capri, many of you have met her on these times, these vacations and things that she gets from schooling. She'll be here. When she was two years old, I was in the middle of a church plant, and so my office was in my home in the garage, and I renovated my garage so that I could have a place to study the Word of God in a semi-quiet place. Well, my daughter, evidently, while I was studying, and she's about two years old at the time, she stumbles into my garage office, and I just see she's playing. She's just sitting there in a diaper, and it's cute, and I just keep going back to the Word, and I look over a little later out of the corner of my eye, and I noticed that my little diapered daughter is covered in a blanket of blood. And I was horrified at what took place. I could only imagine. But what was amazing is how serene she was being covered in blood. It was almost like something out of a horror movie where this sweet, beautiful little blonde-haired child is just blanketed in blood, and she's entirely serene. What, Father? You know, there's, there's just no concern whatsoever. And I looked to see what could possibly have created this. Evidently, when we had renovated our garage, we had left a straight razor blade on top of the washing machine. And in its vibrations, it fell off onto the floor. And my daughter had found that forbidden item. And it was a thing of curiosity to her. And she decided to play with it. And she began to cut herself in various places on her body. And she felt no immediate uh, pain from that, as those of you who have cut yourself with a razor can attest. There's not immediate pain. But then blood begins to come 
come forth. And then I went over to my daughter and I snatched her up and I took the razor blade away, much to her displeasure. She thought I was taking away something that was, was beneficial to her, helpful to her, fun to play with. And in, and in many ways, we can frame a message on homosexuality in this way. There are many people who have stumbled into that which is forbidden, that which has this, this curiosity to it. And then on the outset, it looks fun and exciting. And even when you begin to practice it, it may be something that appears to be something that is enjoyable, something that is even beneficial to me. And when somebody dares to try to take it away, it can cause great displeasure. You're attacking that which I desire. However, I want you to see, friends, that as Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, sometimes your friend, because he's a true friend, he's going to tell you the truth. Like the old 1980s drinking and driving campaign you all remember, it would always say, friends, don't let friends drive drunk. You know, there was this temptation that if I'm going to see my friend, they, they're going to drive home, and I know they're drunk. I don't want to get in the way between them. I don't want to get them mad at me. They're my friend. The idea was you're not a true friend if you allow your friend drunk to get the keys and turn the, you know, turn the ignition on and drive off drunk. They could kill themselves or someone else. You're not a true friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful is that friend who is willing to wound you when it's for your good. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy, that there are times that people appear to be your friend because they're giving you kisses. They're applauding you. They're telling you you're a hero. They're telling you that you're brave. But they're truly your enemy. Why? Because they're saying such things because they simply don't want to face your flesh. They don't want to face your wrath. They don't want to face your ire. They don't want to threaten their relationship. At that point, they're not loving you. They're loving themselves. It's a selfish love. They're not willing to enter in between you and that which is damaging to you. That is the spirit of this message. And this morning, it's just going to be an exposition of Scripture, but as we exposit Scripture, we just simply let the truth of the Scripture rise off by itself without tainting it with a human opinion. It's still going to come across as a very offensive message to many in this culture. Why? Because unwittingly we are being indoctrinated into homosexuality it's absolutely everywhere it was nowhere when I was a child everybody understood homosexuality is something that this this fringe group did and we all knew it was wrong even secular psychologists knew it was wrong but today it's everywhere it's being we're being indoctrinated it's in every movie it's even in Disney movies now homosexuality is in Disney movies for children, it's in children's books, it's in TV shows, it's on billboards, it's on ads and commercials, it's in books, it's in magazines, it's in our school system where we're training people in homosexuality. And so there is this, this great deal of external pressure from our, our decadent society in which we live to embrace, to indoctrinate you, to believe that something which we knew was wrong before, to somehow believe now that it's a good thing. Woe unto them who make evil good and good evil, God says. But despite the severity of the verbiage of God's word in this subject matter, friends, I want you to hear me. No matter how you feel, I genuinely do care about you. I do love you, and I want you to hear this truth. And I'm willing to risk how you feel about me to give it to you. 
And this is not preached from an ivory palace. This is not preached from a haughty, holier-than-thou kind of a spirit, friends. This is coming from a man that God has saved. I've not saved myself. I've done no good. Paul says that in my body and my flesh dwells no good thing. There's nothing good about this fellow here. I'm another sinner that God has saved, and it's by his grace. It's not by my good works. What you're looking at here is a liar, a cheat, a thief, an adulterer and murderer at heart. That is what God has saved. And it's that kind of a person that's simply appealing to you in love. Listen to the word of God. And so we begin today, we're going to look at what I believe is the most clear passage on homosexuality. It's in the book of Romans chapter 1. Now it's appropriate that Paul will address this in the book of Romans because as we know, those of you who have studied the nation of Rome, you have watched TV shows, documentaries, or movies on Rome, you realize how decadent Rome was. Rome was noted for its orgies, for its homosexuality, for its sexual deviation. And so Paul writes in the most difficult of circumstances one of the clearest messages on homosexuality. The first thing we learn from homosexuality is that God takes it very, very seriously. In Romans 1, it's going to begin by showing you the dissension of a society through sin. It's a downward slope. What God is going to say is that a society historically does not leave a place of great devotion to God and immediately adopt homosexuality. There's a whole process of sin that happens before a person or a nation gets into that particular lifestyle. We don't just jump into it. We see the dissension of a society downward into sin. Verse 21, it talks about they knew God, but they did not honor him as God, neither were they thankful. They know that God exists. God is a part of my culture. I accept that God is there. I'm just not simply going to make God the center of my universe. I've got other things to do other than God. Yes, I want to go to church because I don't want to go to hell. Yes, I have God in my life because I don't want to go to hell, but I've got better things to do. And so God becomes less of a priority. After that, verse 22, it says the nation, they claim to be wise, but they're living foolishly. They start finding authorities outside of Scripture. I know God says this, but Facebook says this. I know God says this, but my secular textbook says this. And we find authorities outside of God, and we claim to be wise. We claim to have a renaissance. We claim to be enlightened. That somehow we've progressed beyond what our creator God has said is true and we found new truth. But what does God say about that person? They've become foolish. Verse 23, it says that they uh, live in idolatry. They're no longer living for God as their chief affection in life. They love the creation greater than the creator. We're truly, we are the prodigal son. I want your blessing, God, but I don't want you. I want your creation. And creation is what we begin to live for rather than God. And we, our, our goals and dreams and ambitions are no longer the service of God in his kingdom. We have lowered our sights to just earthly things. We have set our mind, as Colossians 3 says, on things of earth. That's where a society goes. We live in idolatry. We worship. We live for. We give our money to earthly things. So we may not be worshiping Vishnu or Shiva but we're very much in idolatry when we love anything more than Jesus. Then verse 24, he says, the nation begins to live for their fleshly appetites. They're eating and they're drinking. They're engaging in, in sexuality. They begin to see the purpose of life as hedonism. The purpose of my life is just to gratify my flesh, do what my flesh desires. And at that point, 
you get a little bit bored of just normal fleshly gratification, it leads to the final stage of a country's descent into sin in verses 26 to 27. It says in verses 26 to 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For this reason means that what I'm about to share about homosexuality happened for a reason. It didn't just, we didn't just fall into homosexuality as an individual. We didn't just fall into homosexuality as a nation. We pr gradually, progressively descended into homosexuality. There's a process that we followed. For this reason, because we've said we no longer want God in our culture. Be for this reason, because we said we don't want prayer in schools. For this reason, because we're ripping down the Ten Commandments from our courthouses. For this reason, because we've taken God out of a culture, it should no longer surprise us that our culture begins to unravel. You see, Colossians 1.17 says, in Him, in Christ, all things consist and have their being. When we take Christ out of a culture, the culture begins to just unravel like a sweater that you keep pulling on that piece of yarn and pretty soon there's nothing but just a, a, this useless pile. That's what happens when we take God out of a culture. And one of the symptoms, he says, that a culture has completely sucked God out of a culture is that now we're not just indulging in the gifts God's given us. You know, if you indulge in sleep, you're a sloth. If you indulge in food, you're a glutton. If you indulge in drinking, you're a drunkard. We're no longer indulging in the gifts God gave us. Now we're throwing God's gifts away and we're playing with a box. We're playing with things that were intended to be gifts to us. We're going to what God is going to call later unnatural. God says this is the final stage of a country's decadence. When we're no longer indulging sinfully in the gifts he's given to us, we are now trying to go to the things that are forbidden by God. God doesn't give any sins beyond this. He doesn't give us any sins beyond homosexuality. In God's eyes, homosexuality is the final stage of a nation's decadence who has shaken their fist at God and said, we will not follow. I will define good and evil for myself. We're back to the garden. We see, number two, that God calls homosexuality dishonorable. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And you're going to see in just a moment, this is written in the context of homosexuality. God calls it dishonorable. What does it mean that God calls homosexuality dishonorable? If you look at the Greek word dishonorable, the root word is time. Have anybody named Timothy watching this? Uh, your name means time, theo. Time means to honor. Theo means God, so to honor God. That's what Timothy means. So Time means to honor, but this is not just Time. This is Ah Time. Now, when we put an A prefix before something, we know even in English it means to negate what you are saying. So if somebody is a theist, they believe in God. If they are an Ah theist, an atheist, they don't believe in God. It's the exact opposite. What God is calling homosexuality is Ah Time. It is without honor. It is not that which honors God. It is not a sexual relationship that God finds honorable. Hebrews 13, 4 says, what is honorable to God? The marriage bed is undefiled. That honors God. We're doing it his way. We're not having sex outside of marriage. We're not moving in together. We're not having sex with multiple partners. We're not having orgies. We're not doing any other kind of uh, fornication. 
We're saving pure sexuality, which, by the way, is a gift from God. As a church, we can talk about sexuality in a frank way. It is a gift of God. But we do it within the marriage context, and it is between a male and it is between a female. God says this is time. Anything outside of that is ah, time. It is dishonorable. And so God says in verse 26, just in case you're still wondering, is God really calling homosexuality dishonorable or is it something else? Verify for yourself. Read in verse 26, it says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For... Now, when you see the word for in the Bible, he's trying to connect what he's going to say with what he just said. What is a dishonorable passion? For. So what he's about to describe is what is dishonorable. He says, for their women exchange their natural relations for what is contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What does God call dishonorable? He calls dishonorable men engaging in unnatural relationships with other men. When women and men are consumed with, the term he uses here is passion. It's a sexual passion. When men have a sexual passion for another man, when a woman has a sexual passion for another woman, God calls that dishonorable. More than that, number three, God calls homosexuality unnatural. Verse 26 to 27. So I'm going to read the full context here. For the women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and men likewise gave up their natural relations with women, were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I wanted to read that all in context together so you, you don't think I'm trying to pluck things out of context. You see what it's talking about. When you read through that full passage, the message is clear. The message is irrefutable how God feels about homosexuality. So God says that they left what is considered a natural relation. What is something that is natural? It's something that is in your nature to do. It's, it's instinctive. It's built into you. We naturally eat. We naturally drink. Our bodies are made to consume, to process food, and to eliminate it. That is natural. It is what is good. It is what is healthy. The human body has certain things that are natural to it. If you remember in seventh grade, probably before that now, but when I was young, seventh grade was when you had to take mandatory sex ed in high school, or in junior high, rather. And I remember the terrifying things that I learned uh, in, in that sexual education that I received in school. Uh, I remember seeing, they would show pictures of male and female anatomy. And for a lot of us, you know, it's the first time we've seen this kind of stuff. And it's, it, we just, we're averting our eyes because it's so, it's in your face. But something we learned from that and in 10th grade anatomy and biology is that the human body, when you examine it, you can see very clearly the hands of a creator God upon it. This is not a byproduct of time and chance. That God made the male body and the female body to work together like a jigsaw puzzle. They are complementary to one another. That God created our organs to work together like an orchestra in perfect harmony, doing different things, but at the, in the end, it produces life. It is natural. It is what is according to our nature. It is what is instinctive. You put two females together, nothing happens. You put two males together, nothing happens. Or worse yet, 
you get disease. So you have male plus male equals death. Male plus female equals life. If you don't believe in the Bible, friends, and what it has to say, objectively look at the science behind it. If I was Charles Darwin, just talking about the survival of the species, and I don't believe in a creator God at all, I would still have to objectively say that homosexuality is bad for a culture because it does not propagate the species. In fact, it actually kills the species. So even if you're not going to look at the Bible, look at the science behind it. Is Romans 1 really talking about homosexuality? You say, didn't we just answer that? Why am I being so repetitive here? It's because as you have conversations with people in homosexuality, they're not going to believe you at the first listen. They're going to have to hear it again and again and again because they've so conditioned their hearts and minds to believe that the Word of God isn't actually saying what you're saying. Is this really talking about homosexuality? Compare what God says briefly. Let's review. God says men and women are leaving what is the natural use of one another. We all understand what that means. God is saying that they are burning with sexual passion for one another, men for men, women for women. Verse 27 is even more explicit. Verse 27 says, men with men. The Greek reads more plainly, arsane and arsane. What is he saying? Men literally inside of other men. What are we talking about here? That cannot talk about anything other than an intimate sexual intercourse between two men, a man treating another man as he would a woman, and God calls that dishonorable. More than that, if you look in verse 27, God says, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. These acts of men in men, women with women, God has something to say about it. He says it is shameless. Now, this is an, an interesting Greek word. It's, the, its root word is schema, where you get the word schematic or scheme. There's a plan. There's an idea. There's an overarching idea of how things are supposed to be. If you build a house, there's a blueprint. And every builder, every subcontractor that comes in, we all have to agree to use the same schema or things don't work together, the same schematic. We have to use a blueprint. So we can't have the builders, you know, the framers, they're using the blueprint. And then you have some plumber or some drywall or whatever. He's using a different plan. He's just doing what he wants to. When that happens, when you abandon the, the schematic, bad things happen happen. God is saying that man is, uh, homosexuality is schema. God says that men in men is not just schema, it's, here's the prefix again, ah schema. God is saying that homosexuality is against the schematic that God has given. It's literally, <clears throat> homosexuality is against the blueprint that you've wandered away from God's plan. Has God indeed given us a blueprint? He sure has. It's in God's word, and we're going to look at it. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper who is fit or suitable for him. In other words, God saw Adam. He's lounging around on the couch, and he's eating Cheetos. God says, This man needs a woman to tell him to go out and mow the grass. And so he needs a helper who is suitable. Now, that word suitable means opposite, but corresponding to. It means it's not the same, 
but they go together. It's like a nut and a bolt. When you're trying to put something together, you're trying to get work done, you don't just need two bolts. You can't do a lot with that. But if you have a nut and a bolt that go together, they are suitable. They're opposite, but corresponding to one another. So now you can accomplish something. God is saying that that's what a woman is to a man. She is a nut to a bolt. She is opposite, but corresponding to the man. They belong together. What are some things that we can learn just from this simple verse? First of all, that there's two genders. There's male and female. God made them male and female. Uh, Genesis 1.27 says the same thing. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. The answer is right there. How many genders did God create? God is a binary gender person. He, he believes in two genders. There's male and there's female. That's what God created. What if we have genders beyond that? Then it's something man created. God created male and female. If there's other genders, it's because man created them, not God. You say, well, God didn't say that there wasn't any other gender. Friends, you can't make an argument from what God does not say. God does not say a lot of things. What we hold to is what God did say. He created male and female. They are suitable, opposite, but corresponding to one another. You say, well, science has improved since then. Friends, discovering that men are confused without God is not discovering new genders. It's discovering that man without God is lost. So without the creator, we come apart. So what else is God's schematic for marriage? Well, let's look in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. Therefore, a man, a male shall leave his father and mother, and he will hold fast to cling to, cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Why were they naked and not ashamed? It's because there's nothing to be ashamed of, of true and pure biblical sexuality. When we do things God's way, a man with a woman, and we, are, we do it within the context of marriage, it's not an ugly thing. It's not a shh, quiet, evil, ugly thing. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of. The idea is, if we do something outside of a man and woman in marriage, there is supposed to be a sense of shame. Now, I know in this culture, shame gets a really bad rap. We do everything in our, in our power to avoid shame. But do you know shame has a purpose in God's word? Shame has the purpose of when we're outside, when we are ah schema, when we are outside of God's blueprint, we are supposed to have an inner sense of shame that what we are doing is wrong. James 4 says, weep and mourn and wail and let your happiness be turned to sorrow. There is a time and a place to feel shame for what we do. And when we are ah schema, we're against the schematic God gave us, we are supposed to feel shame and it's good. Why? Because it's only through that shame that we realize something's wrong and I can repent and I can get right with God. Shame is not something to be avoided. Once we repent, then the shame is gone and we don't live in that shame. We aren't ashamed of our past. Paul says, I put the past behind me and I press on to the future. Okay, so shame isn't something we live with for our whole life, but shame is something we live with while we are in sin. God says in Genesis 2, when a male leaves his home, his father and mother, and he goes to start his new home, what should that home look like? God says he's gonna leave his mother, father and mother and he's gonna find a woman, someone opposite but corresponding to him. And with that, 
you will create a home. God created the blueprint right here. This is the blueprint. This is what God says is good and is healthy. If you need another cross-reference about whether or not God sees homosexuality as natural, you can go to Jude chapter 1, verse 7. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, most of us who have any knowledge of the Bible, we know about Sodom and Gomorrah in its sins and God's, God's very uh, explosive judgment of them. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, by the way, God is not saying that homosexuality was Sodom's only sin. He says they pursued unnatural desire. So beyond immorality, which is sexuality outside of God's parameters, God includes that they did something which was unnatural. God doesn't associate homosexuality with, with even just other normal sexual sins, sexual sins with, the, 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 with a male and with a female, but outside of God's boundaries. God puts what Sodom did in a different category. He calls it unnatural desire. It's against the nature of us. It's the ultimate defiance of God who created us one way, who gave us a blueprint, who gave us a schematic that creates life and that creates pleasure and joy in that union. And we've gone against what is even naturally pleasurable to do that which is not because we want to be our own God. We want to define good and evil for ourselves. He says they uh, pursued unnatural desire and they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. What God is saying is the fire that God rained down from heaven to destroy Sodom was a taste of what is coming. That there is an, he doesn't just say fire. He's not just talking about the temporal punishment he gave them. God says that there is an eternal fire that is awaiting them. God says because of their unnatural desire, there is an eternal punishment that awaits if homosexuality is proved by God, then why does God judge it with eternal fire? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Number four, we'll see that God will judge homosexuality. Chapter one, verse 27. At a glance, this... I realize this is a hard message. At a glance, you'd be like, thought this wasn't gonna be a hateful message. Friends, I hope that you can see past... What, what God says about the sin of homosexuality and understand that homosexuality, not the truth, is your enemy. Homosexuality, not the truth, is your enemy. Your God created you. Your God loves you. Your God wants you to be back together with him. But God isn't gonna let you back with him when you do life your own way, when you live in sin and rebellion against his schematic. So what, is, <clears throat> what does God say about his judgment of them? He says at the end of 27, it is uh, homosexuality, men committing shameless acts in men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. God uses the term penalty. What's a penalty for? Uh, its root word is penal. What is a penal institution? It's a, it's a jail. It's a prison. It's where you go when you have broken the schematic of society. You've broken the blueprint, the laws of society. You have sinned against society, and so they're going to put you in a penal institution. It's what you get for when you did something objectively wrong. If you steal, you will go to prison. If you murder, you go to prison. If you rape, you go to prison. Our society says these are objectively wrong, and we will penalize you for doing that. 
When I hear the word penalty, I think of hockey. I think of the penalty box. I got a, a young nephew named Bodie in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And by the way, that's what I found out all the boys in Minneapolis do. They all play hockey. It's, it's a national, national pastime. It's, it's, there's a sort of hushed reverence to Canadian, or Canadians and uh, Minnesotans when they talk about hockey. And so when I go up to Minneapolis to visit my nephew, I love watching his hockey games. And so we'll sit there in this freezing arena and we're watching him play. And he, at the time, was, I think, about 14 years old. So he's in the category we call bantams. And so we're watching these 14-year-old boys play and they're just barely pubescent. They got all this energy, all this newfound strength. They don't know what to do with it. And so at this particular age, they're first allowed to body check. If you know anything about hockey, body checking, where you get aggressive and physical with them and get the puck, it's, it's part of the game. So my nephew, he goes up, and I see him, and I've got it on video still, and he's skating with all his might toward this boy to get that puck, and he just puts it into him, puts this other boy into the glass, and there is this thunderous sound, you know, as he, as he puts him into the glass, and you hear it all throughout the arena, and on video, you can hear me shouting, yeah, this is great, buddy, good job, good hit, you know, and I'm just excited for my nephew, but then the referee blows a whistle, I said, why do you blow the whistle? I thought this was bantams. They can check. And my, my brother-in-law, John, he says, well, they can check, but they can't check anywhere. You see, on the back of a bantam jersey, there's a stop sign. You can check a boy from the side. I suppose you could check him from the front, but you can't check a boy in bantams from the back. It's against their rules. And so while I was cheering what he just did, the referee saw it very differently, and he escorted my nephew, Bodie, to the penalty box. He broke the rules. He committed a hockey sin. Okay, and in very many ways, that is like homosexuality. Right now, the world is cheering like I did for Bodhi. Hey, what you're doing is great. You're a hero. You're so brave for coming out like this. You're so brave for embracing this lifestyle. We support you. We applaud you. And that's what we're hearing right now. But the problem is, is there's a referee outside of life, and he sees it differently. What we are cheering, God will penalize. God says there is a penalty. He says there's a penalty that they receive in themselves, literally in their bodies, that when somebody commits homosexual acts, they receive in their bodies a penalty due their error. What is that, what is that penalty they receive? What is a penalty that a homosexual receives in their body for committing homosexuality? It's sexually transmitted disease. There are even certain sexually transmitted diseases that are particular to homosexual behavior, that through bisexuality and other things, it's now spread to other places. But things that arose, it is God's penalty. It's God blowing the whistle saying, you're out of line. You have, you have committed a sin and there is a penalty for doing this. It's, God says it's a penalty that is due. God says it's a penalty that is deserved for breaking my rules, for going outside of my schematic. There's a penalty that you should expect when you do this. God also calls homosexuality an error. <clears throat> he says receiving in themselves the penalty due their or for their error. This word error is a really fun Greek word. Error is a word plane. 
sounds a little bit like planet, and that's exactly where it comes from. Planets were so called because old-timey astronomers, they look up in the night sky, and they see that there's certain established patterns. If you're, a, if you're a stargazer, you know these patterns. And they've noticed that this certain collection of stars always moves, moves together in a certain harmony, a pattern. It's always in the same place at the same time of year. They work together in harmony. They follow, if you will, these, these rules of of movement through the sky. And so you can see Orion and you can see Ursa Major. You can see a McDonald's Happy Meal. I don't know, you see, you see different bicycle, you see different things in the sky, these patterns of stars and we identify them. And they're so predictable in their movement that you can navigate a ship by them. But there were certain bright things in the sky that looked like stars but aren't. They were called wanderers. They were planets. They wouldn't stay in the same formation with the rest of the stars. They were moving in a different fashion. And so they just initially, they didn't quite know what they were. He just called them the plane, the wanderers. What God is saying about error, he's saying about homosexuality is that homosexuality is a plane. We have wandered from God's truth. His schematic says this, and we move in perfect harmony together. But there's some people who will not follow God's schematic. They will not follow what everyone else is doing. They're going to wander from the truth. God calls homosexuality an error. In other places, that exact same Greek word can be translated a delusion, a false opinion. God calls homosexuality a delusion. You're believing a lie. And anymore, you're asking people to enter into that lie with you to enter into what God calls a delusion with you, what God calls a false opinion. You can have an opinion about homosexuality against God, but God calls it false. You say, you know what, I hear what you're saying, I hear all your scriptures, but I just interpret that differently. Do we have a right to say that? Do we have a right to say, you know, I hear all that you're saying about God, and I hear that it says that it's this, and it's this, and it's this, but I just, I have a different opinion, so I'm just going to move on and just define it. I'm going to interpret the Scripture the way I want to. Does man have the right to interpret the Scripture any way he wishes? No, we do not. We have to interpret the Bible faithfully, literally. When my wife leaves me a message saying, hey, honey, we got guests coming over today. Would you clean up the living room? And I interpret that as, hey, honey, would you sit on the t in front of the TV and watch a baseball game, you know, and eat a bag of Doritos? That's not what that means. I don't have the freedom to reinterpret what my wife says. If I read it plainly and literally and clearly, it's obvious what my wife's intention for me is. I don't have a right to reinterpret that and say, yeah, I know you said this, but really, I think it means this. 2 Peter 1.20 teaches us something very important about Bible interpretation. There's only one interpretation of Scripture, God's interpretation. Now, there's many applications to it. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is from someone's own interpretation. What he's saying is that when the Word of God came to man, Peter did not have the freedom to write in his own interpretation, his own thoughts, his own meaning. And when we read the Bible, likewise, we don't have a privilege of interpreting the Bible how, however we feel like doing it because it suits us. We come to God's intended meaning and we follow it. That's it. One interpretation, many applications. So we may read the same scripture and decide to choose to live a certain way because of it, but there's only one meaning. So if I were to come out here and I were to shout fire in this building, there's a fire in the building, what, what does that mean? 
I can say, you know, you, obviously you know my intended meaning is that there is an actual literal fire in the building and I'm yelling that so that you can respond appropriately. Well, Mark here, he doesn't have the freedom to go tell me, oh, well, when he said fire, actually he meant that there's a figurative fire. He's talking about, you know, over here, this couple's relationship is really not doing well, and they were fighting last night, and really he means it's a figurative fire, and really we don't need to do anything because it's a figurative, not a literal fire. Do I get to say that? There's only one intended meaning of what I'm supposed to say, but how you respond to that could be very, very different. Me, I'm gonna grab my wife, I'm gonna grab my Bible, and I'm gonna run out that door right there. However, we got some firefighters in this room, and they may, interpret that, or they may interpret it the same, but respond or apply it differently. They may run toward the fire, say, hey, I know what to do with this. He's an idiot, but you know, <laughs> let him flee, but I'm gonna go. I know what I'm doing with this fire. And they may charge toward. So same interpretation, different applications. The word of God only has one meaning. Man does not have a right to overlay his desired meaning over what God has already proclaimed to be right and true. But God says, in the context of homosexuality, that's exactly what man does. In Romans 1.18, the Bible says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What he's saying is that God has revealed to man what is good and what is bad. It's revealed to all creation, uh, through, revealed from heaven. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, that just looking out in the heavens, the sky, we can see things that are true about God, how, how big he is, how powerful he is, how infinite he is. We can look even here on earth. The Bible says in this very context, in Romans chapter one, it talks about how man can understand things about God by looking at the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. That's right there in Romans 1. So God is saying that man is without excuse, saying, well, you didn't tell us about this, God. God is saying, what you need to know about me and morality, that much is already visible just by looking at the things that are made. What does man do with that truth? He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness or because of, they suppress the truth. That man, we know what is true from heaven. We know what is true. We have innate understanding of, of truth through our conscience and things. But in Romans 1.18 says, even though we know what the truth is, we, we can see it out there, we see cause and effect in society, and we can see that that is objectively a bad thing. We're going to, the Bible says, we suppress the truth by our unrighteousness. Because of my unrighteous lifestyle, I'd rather choose a convenient lie than to submit myself to what God clearly says is true. And so we suppress. This word suppress is, imagine you're at the beach, you're in the water, you're playing with your little brother in the water, and you want to hide a beach ball from him, right? And I've done that, maybe you have too. And we, we taunt our little brother. And we take that ball and we hide it between our legs under the water. And, and you can feel the pressure of, the, of, the, of that ball. It wants to rise to the surface. And you're like, hey, I don't know where the ball is. <laughs> Where'd the ball go? And he turns around and boop, and you let it up. And the, and the ball immediately rises and pops up out of, out of the water on the surface. It's natural tendency is to reveal itself and to be obvious and clear. That is the term that God uses here in Romans 1. The truth is obvious and clear like a beach ball rising out of the water. It's there. If you don't want to look at the truth, what does man have to do? He has to suppress it. He has to hold it under and tuck it between his legs and make sure it doesn't rise up because I don't want to look at it. 
The truth, the Bible says, is that evident to all men. We suppress the truth. Why? Because of my unrighteousness. If I acknowledge to God that he's right about homosexuality or any of the other sins of the Bible, I've got to change, and I don't want to change. Well, if the Bible is this clear about homosexuality, why are there so many people, including other Christians, that are confused about it? I think, number one, it's because there's a lot of people, including Christians, who simply don't know their Bibles. They come on Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night, and that's the extent of the Bible that they get in a week. They don't get into the Bible outside of that. They don't know God's Word. They read the entirety of the Scriptures because they, get, they don't want to read about how to skin a goat in Leviticus, and they're thinking, that has nothing to do with my life. I'm not going to go there. And so we ignore certain portions of the Scripture. We don't read through the Bible up here. We don't go through these things that force us to study the difficult sections of the Bible. And so we don't know the whole counsel of God. We don't see what God says. I think, number two, the reason that people believe that homosexuality is acceptable by God, even though maybe they're a Christian or go to church, is because they've already decided in their heart what they want to be true. That is the tendency of man, is that we overlay on the Bible what we want to be true. When we come to the Bible and we want to discover what truth is, the only way to discover truth is to first admit that you don't have it. The Bible says you will search me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. If we're, which means that we're searching for truth. It's an acknowledgement, God, I don't have truth. Only you have truth. But if we're coming to the Bible saying, I already know it's true, I already know homosexuality is okay, I'm just going to find where in Scripture it's okay, then we are going to take and we're going to twist and we're going to convert and we're going to break and we're going to grind up and we're going to, we're going to mold the God's Word like Play-Doh into the shape of the container that society wants it to be in. Do we have a right to do that with God's Word? No, we don't. We have to come to God's word saying, I acknowledge, God, that I am stupid. I am foolish. Uh, I need your wisdom. I need your foolishness, or your, your wisdom, in that James says, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and he will give it. Problem is, there's not a lot of people asking God for his wisdom. They feel like they already know what's right. Or, probably more accurately, there's a certain truth that they want to believe because it'll make their life easier in life. If somebody says they believe in homosexuality, everybody's going to applaud you. They're going to say, wow, how progressive, how, how, how wise and enlightened you are with these stupid and foolish Christians with their Bibles. They're so old-fashioned. And so we, there's, there's all kinds of external pressure to want to believe that homosexuality is, is good, it's acceptable, it's okay, and something to be applauded. And so many of us, we then come to the Bible already having made up in our hearts and minds whether or not it's good or bad before we've even looked at the word. And so now, like a child, you know, you ever play with cellophane and you just pull it over your eyes and everything you see is red now because you got this red cellophane in front of you. We do that sometimes with the Bible. We already have the homosexual cellophane in front of our eyes and everything we see says it's good, it's beautiful, it's natural. And even when we look at the Bible, we're only looking for how the Bible supports it, not if the Bible actually condemns the practice. We've conditioned our hearts to be what it, we already wish for truth to be. The, the, the court has already decided in our hearts. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, Jesus has come into the world, truth has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light. They, in other words, they love, in, in the Bible, when we talk about truth and error, it often refers to it as light and darkness. Light is truth. 
God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It gives me truth to live by. It says light has come into the world, the truth. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life has come into the world. He's shared with us what is truth, but we prefer a lie. We prefer the darkness. We prefer not to know the truth. Why? Jesus says they prefer the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. I'm sharing this, friends, because as you have conversations with people out there in the real world, you're going to discover very quickly that if you do not agree with the prevailing winds of society, they're going to hate you for it. You try to share the truth of the Word of God in a secular environment, they're not just going to see that as a a dissenting opinion. They're going to see you as objectively evil, as dangerous. Why? Because darkness hates light. They want to stay the way that they are. They want to stay in rebellion against God. And so don't be surprised when that happens. Now, there's a whole nother companion message that goes with this one. This is a tough message. I'll admit, this is probably the most difficult message I've had to preach, at least in many years, because it is so counter-cultural. But friends, just because I provide a dissenting opinion doesn't mean I hate you. We need to to not let the world redefine what love and hate is. Love is doing what is good for that person. What Proverbs said, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So sometimes your friend is going to dissent with you. Sometimes they may even say something that is wounding to you for the intention of doing good to you. That's not hate. The Bible says that's love. That's a friend. But profuse are the kisses of an enemy. He's going to tell you right now what you want to hear because he's selfish. He wants you to like him. That's not a friend, and that's not the truth. That is true hate, where they don't care about how you, how you end up in life. Next last session that we're going to have, the next sermon, the next service, I encourage you to watch that in tandem with this one at some point, because these two messages cannot be separated. We've just talked this morning about the theology of homosexuality, but next sermon is the lab. Having this knowledge, what do we do with it? How do we respond to questions people have? How do we respond to uh, common objections that we will hear? How do we show love to people while still in disagreement with their lifestyle? Those are the questions that we are going to answer in this next sermon. In the meantime, friends, I pray that you understand that this message has been delivered in a spirit of love for you, more concerned with your well-being than whether or not you like us. I pray that you'll receive it with the heart intent that it was given and that you'll give careful thought, not to what I say, but at least to the scriptures I've mentioned. Study them, pray about them, and see what God would have you to do as a result. Let's close this morning in prayer. Our Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us a book, an oracle, uh, something that we can go to, a lot that divides us, that that, uh, when it is cast, it... It ends all arguments. Father, that we don't have to have a debate on what is truth and what is error because you've you've already clearly revealed it. Father, I pray if there's any listening to this who are struggling with same-sex attraction, maybe who are practicing homosexuality, who are dealing with it, Father, that that we would understand what your truth says, that we would live it out, that we would share it in a spirit of love with others not to use this information as a bludgeon, 
to beat people with it, to try to just beat them in a biblical debate. But God, that you would fill our hearts with love for those who are struggling with a sin that will ultimately take their life. God, give us love for one another. Give us love for those who are struggling with these, with these sins, even as we ourselves struggle with our own unique sins. Father, glorify yourself in what we say, what we do, and how we share that love with others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, simply click on the link in the show notes and we'll be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you've enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. As promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at Unity Baptist Ashland. Remember, if you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you are never alone. He is always near, and you are deeply loved. Until next time, have a great day.